Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Brand new advertiser, guys, Rex Specs. We love them. They believe that any adventure worker play is better with a dog by your side to keep them protected with you no matter what. Rex Specs designs and manufactures performance-driven dog gear for the active and working dog. 20% off your first order discount code working dog radio the show is doctor eric and i are actually both field staff guys so uh doctor has been committed for over 20 years to crafting training college to perfect precise fit and finish and intuitive design and account and accountable performance the 1900 se collar demonstrates what they strive for which is an ultimate dog training tool that is durable dependable and designed for designed for the most demanding conditions and i actually use this thing at the kennel they have the new black one that has the lock and the boost feature on it as well as well as the hands-free which we use a ton if you guys follow me on social media you see that i use that during tracking and we do that negative reinforcement trick which is what is the collar that we're using the other thing is the ys600 so funny fact it stands for yo shut up the number of times <laughs> that you won't have to say it because it works every time. So use the discount code WDR10 for 10% off any single item over 200 bucks. And of course, they also have the popper and the dropper, which I think I have five of that can I use all the time. So hit them up, dogtra.com, WDR10 for 10%. Guys, be sure to check out Ray Allen Manufacturing's new training app that they've got, iTunes Store, and the Android store, uh, new product collaborations. Um, be sure to check it out. We also got a new discount code RAM, R-A-M-W-D-R, RAMWDR for 10% off, rayallen.com. All right, we are back, Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. I am Ted Summers. We're in uh, Phoenix at HITS 2023. By the way, HITS 2024 is in Chocolate City. It's in New Orleans next year. So, uh, yeah, Ninth Ward Fried Chicken. Beignets, po boys. I'm bringing a gun for sure. I'm flying with a gun. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, mean it, it, it's, New, it's New Orleans. I mean, they have great scooper for great. They have great foods and great crackheads. Mm. So uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, but I'm looking forward to that. That and it's uh, in the same time zone as as home. So that'll be nice. Uh, I may actually just drive to that one. We'll see. Um, yeah. So you te- you taught this morning went well, well. You got you had standing room only. Yeah, it was good. Uh, they put me in a small room. I'm I'm gonna have to uh, talk to we. Last year they put you and I in the big room and we had 400 people in there. What makes them think I couldn't draw 400 people again? Or right. A few hundred. <laughs> and so uh, yeah, they were standing. I felt bad because there's people out in the hallway, a lot of them. And I talked to guys. They go, "Do we stood out there for a little bit?" And then we just moved on. And like I, I wouldn't stand out there, so I don't blame you. Um, yeah. But it was good. Blue, you know. My class is really good. It's a lot of good information. It is better suited, as you know, to to do it and then immediately go work the dogs. Yeah. Rather than somebody going, now, what did he say this to do here? What was that? Did you write that down? Did you pay attention? No, fuck. Did you? And then they're guessing. Right. So I always tell people, if you're going to do it, just call me or fucking yeah, FaceTime. I'll yeah. walk you through it. Yeah. That, and that's what I told people because I have people coming up to me after because they know because of the podcast and whatever mm-hmm. else. And we do the same type of stuff. Well, when Eric said this, what did he mean? So I was able to. Like, yeah, that so, helps. Yeah. But so, yeah, if you're listening to this and you sat through his class, you don't understand something, just send him an Instagram message and make sure because he can't stand the red bubbles. He's got like <laughs> OCD and has to clear all those out. So will he will, sure. he will answer you. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> so who do, uh, who do we have? So we, uh, we're sitting at the pool the first day. Yeah. It's hot and as we're out there talking to some guys that, uh, that we know from, uh, up here in, or, uh, up in Colorado and they introduced me to our guest and we started talking and before we could have fucking sat there for like 
five, six hours deep diving. Not in, in that heat. Well, no, <laughs> we're under an umbrella, but deep diving into uh, mainly detection and cognitive stuff. And um, he's definitely way deeper into it than I am. And so I was like, we got it. We got to get him on. So it's our uh, new friend. We're good buddy. Darren, uh, DJ Holmes. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well. Honored. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I'm glad we met um, out there because uh, some of the things we talked about, because detection is always um, like prevalent. Like there's a lot of discussion about it. And, and some stuff that's, I think people have, they're just... Uh, not deep diving it and they don't even know the whys or the hows. They just have, have done it, you know, a certain way and things like that. And they just, well, uh, why does he do this? I don't know. He just fucking does. And because I've done it this way, but you seem to be a person who does, uh, wants to know why and wants to know how, and what, what am I doing that I could be doing better? Or what am I doing wrong? Maybe, or, and my thing is I always like to have like four or five systems because of different you know, dogs, you know? So, uh, talk about your, um, give us a brief history of who you are and we'll get rolling from there. Sure. Uh, like they said, I'm DJ Holmes or Darren Holmes. Um, I can attribute most of my, um, dog experience from, from hunting. Really. I'm a passionate outdoorsman and hunter. And that's kind of, you know, led me to the path that, um, that I'm on now and, and, and probably will be, you know, for some time through the future. But, you know, I've been fortunate to have some unique experiences um, you know, kind of cutting my teeth with, you know, hunting dogs and, and doing professional guiding, uh, that, that passion kind of turned into, uh, understanding that, you know, having one dog is good, but for certain disciplines, upland bird hunting or, or waterfowl, you know, the, the time it takes to train dogs and stuff. Um, I immediately found out that I, I probably ought to invest in more dogs, <laughs> Uh, and so that, that evolved into then obviously the training side of it, um, breeding so on and so forth. And then, you know, um, I did a lot of waterfowl hunting and upland bird hunting. So, um, getting into the competitive, uh, piece when you start breeding and having titles on your dogs, right. You know, mm -hmm. that kind of goes hand in hand with the process as well. So I was, I ended up being an amateur competitor in, uh, the hunter retriever club and, uh, ran multiple dogs to champion levels, uh, did that for a while and then um did different career paths kind of between there i was a private business owner in a liquor store actually for about nice. six years which was an interesting experience <laughs> um sh shortly after that um there was some defense contracting uh, stuff relating to dogs that uh, i had heard about through a uh, mutual pro trainer he was actually had sold a few dogs to them and so um, I was intrigued. I was in the middle of a divorce actually, and the business was going to go away. So I thought, Hey, you know, what's, what, what do I want to do basically mm -hmm. at this point in time? And, you know, again, that passion and then, you know, wanting to serve and, and make a difference and, you know, was all tied into that decision. But ultimately I ended up working for a defense contractor, um, that, you know, was awarded contracts for the Marine Corps IDD program. Mm. So before we started doing the podcast, I didn't know fuck all about bird dogs and bird dog hunt i that whole industry fascinates me that um well first of all there's a lot of wealthy people involved and there's a lot of money in it and that people can you know make all that money uh training and then handling the dog in a competition and they're not the owner the owner's like yep got a champion yeah motherfucker 
I got the champion. You just, you know, I guess that's probably like racehorse kind of kind of deal there. Um, I do find we've had some good uh, bird dog guys on, and I personally have found, and probably because I'm a big fan of Pat Nolan, is that I find you guys are like light years ahead of where a lot of other people are and people are playing catch up and they don't even like, we don't even know what we don't know shit. You guys have been doing like my class today, talking about the tone bird dog guys have been using whistles and things like that and different in tone and everything. I think dog tread, their collars that have tone on it are mostly for hunting dogs. They're not for like the 1900 S is an arc is not going to have, have a collar. Um, what was your specialty with the bird dogs? Like just all around, or do you prefer the upland versus the waterfowl? I dogs? actually, you know, I I did both. So uh, at the competitive level with HRC, you know, I was a a diehard waterfowl, and every every dollar and penny, and <laughs> you know, whatever reserve time I had was spent, you know, in the duck blinds or in in boats, and and so that that itch, you know, the best tool you can have is is a is a dog that that's going to go out and retrieve right and in, in nasty conditions it's just way more mobile in that sense of smell you know you just you have to have it it's kind of the essential tool yeah um and so from there you kind of go through the season seasonal piece of it right so hunting season to season you know you go through you know whatever opens up first if it's in your state just depending on the calendar year but you know from ducks to geese to um, pheasants and then um, i also guided for uh, private you know pheasant re- clubs basically mm-hmm. or reserves to where you know in, in that scenario doing you know standard you know kind of uh, hunt and flesh type scenarios or english style pheasant hunts where you know you've got large stations and people are bowling birds from the top of a hill and you know <laughs> the stations are shooting you know a large quantity of, of birds um you know i i enjoyed all of it um in Colorado and a lot of different states, you can get, you know, into the grouse hunting and all that other stuff. And that's, that was also interesting, um, different seasons, more opportunity to run dogs and, yeah, you know, and, and challenge your, your, you know, your, your shooting skills as well. So was, were you primarily a retriever or did you mix in some pointer in there? No, I've, I've been a diehard lab guy for, for most of my life The yeah. just the versatility of it, um, you know, and having the on off switch and just, you know, they, they were just special. I mean, I kind of grew up with labs and so that was, you know, kind of molded from a young age. Yeah. So you're, um, when you're training the dogs and this is going to kind of segue into what we're going to talk about your, you were training mostly for operational quote unquote, actual hunting versus, uh, not just competition stuff. Is that how that guided you into where you ended up currently though? The style of training that you have, you think? Yeah. So I could tell you that the, the skill set that that got me into the defense contracting because of the cap- that specific capability that was needed, kind of that off leash capability with the detection piece tied together, mm-hmm. um, and essentially it was it was devised you know for safe standoff distance you know for for the Marines when they're out operating that you know IED threat was extremely high. Um, they wanted as much standoff capability as they could get and still be able to you know use that specific tool in conjunction with the other ones to you know defeat IED threats basically. So were they doing dual or single there for that contract? This contract was 100% labs and, oh. and considered single purpose. Although I'd argue that the handling expertise is, is another capability in itself really to teach the way that that's taught. So, yeah. Were you, um, well, and this is a topic I don't, I don't really want to deep dive too much is, um, what did you learn about the breeding part of all that? I'm sure you were probably involved in breeding stuff. Did you like it? Well, so, you know, 
the unique part of, of that contract, and I won't dive into too much, but you know, that those contracts expanded so fast that we were evaluating procuring dogs from literally all over the country and, and parts of Canada, from what I remember. So depending on what assignment you're on, you may, you may be doing, you know, if you're on the procurement team or in, in some special instances, you would travel to a state, to a household, do a truck side evaluation. If the dog met that criteria there, you'd bring them back and do a further evaluation before you decided, Hey, this is a, this is going to be a candidate for what we want. And you can imagine the environmental piece of that was very stringent. Yeah, right? yeah. So you had to have pretty culpable dogs. Well, it's like uh, Ted and I use the same vendor over in Germany. He travels all over Europe and he's like farms, people's homes, just snagging yeah. dogs and get great, good dogs from, I got three, three um, springers from him. They all came from some farm in Italy. There's some dude that just yeah. puts out great fucking dogs. You same know? thing sure. with some of the pointers he's that I've got coming in there from, like somebody's house. I've gotten a couple of like dogs from him too. Some pointy ears that I could tell were raised in a house. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, because they're dickheads, but <laughs> like I could tell they had been raised in a house, but yeah, he, yeah, he just goes wherever and yeah, he does a good job. So when you start this contract going, are you guys like making it up as you go? Like invent, is it, was this brand new or do you get the contract that somebody else had previously had? So it had, it had actually started in past hands, I think through a few contractors initially, uh, I think it's, it came online about 2008 mm. um, and progressed from there. Um, and I'm, I'm still kind of finding out some of the, the lineage before I came onto it. And there's, there's guys here today that are actually part of, you know, a lot oh, of the early sure. and, and some of the progressions through the contracts, but um, you know, it was, it was a large scale operation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, so your piece of it mostly was the off leash part of it, you think? Well, so, you know, when you came in as a retriever trainer, right, like that was kind of the, the capability that you would work on. And, but at the end of the day, you would be assigned to a team and that team was, you know, responsible for, you know, once you've identified the candidates, put them through the training. And I, I believe we had 70 days to actually certify those dogs once they were procured. And that's, that's 70, that's handling odor work, all of it. And it was, it was a Marine Corps certification. It was not you know, your typical odor recognition right. stuff. It was, it was a difficult certification to pass. So within those teams, right. You, and you got to imagine you had trucks and 22 whole trailers and you just have just a vast setup um, because of the, because of the scale of it. Mm -hmm. And um, we traveled across, you know, the United States and, and different training facilities and private properties and utilized everything that we had. It was, it was a big operation. So. So the problem with the big operation is mass producing and, and trying to get dogs. When does, does there get to be a point where you get to like, okay, now I got these 10 guys. I'm going to focus on them or maybe even if it was overseas, that type of stuff. When did you get to like fine, fine tune the, the teams? Sure. So, so through that process, um, you know, once the dogs were certified, typically that's, that's when the, you know, the, the handlers would come in from the Marine Corps. They went through a schoolhouse period. And then they'd get additional training or, and then obviously pre-deployment training mm -hmm. through that. So by my recollection, I, I, I would, I would say anywhere between probably 11 and 13 weeks of total training. What year was this? So I came in in 2011 and I'm, I'm about a hundred percent certain that a really good friend of mine that lives in Tulsa had one of those dogs. Her name was Allie. It was a black lab. Uh, his name's Anthony Marquez. Um, he was in the uh, unit that was in Sangin, and they lost um, 17 Marines yeah. in that one summer and that one deployment. Jeez. 
and uh yeah he's but i'm about 100 percent. she just the dog just passed away i want to say this year um but yeah he's he lives up in tulsa um but yeah he's a great dude but i'm as i'm listening to this i'm like i'm sitting back and i'm like holy shit i think i know i'm like i think i know one of the handlers so sure. yeah yeah but, then there was a you know there was a lot of dogs i think that you know the and a lot of these dogs had multiple deployments right so some of them up to five i believe um obviously the you know the the first handler had first choice the dog and you know a lot yeah. of them went to that when it was all said and done um so yeah you know the contract i could tell stories for days and and really i it, from my looking back on it now it was like i said the combination of 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 the capability and the talent and stuff that was there along with you know some of the scientific research that was that was actually f funded through that program um really moved um things forward in the industry yeah. overall um so yeah it was it was good to be a part of that so uh, to answer your question um the fsr positions that were available there which is you know a field service representative uh, you know you had to test out for that and interview through it and stuff and so basically if you met the criteria for that you would get uh, attached to a battalion mm -hmm. Um, and you were basically the subject matter expert for the handlers and the dogs and you, you supported them through all the additional training, pre-deployment training, and then obviously in country. Yeah. So, um, that's really where, you know, from my experience, you know, the, the large scale training and operations for what it was, it's, it's a necessary evil, but that didn't necessarily get the dogs to the point of where they were operational. And so when I got attached to the battalion that I was with, you know, the reality sunk in of like, all right, you know, these are your dogs, these are your handlers, <laughs> you know, they better be, they, they better suck every bit of knowledge that you can give them, right. Give them the best tools and capability to do the job that they're out there. Right. So you gotta, these Marines were voluntold for the most part that they were going to be dog handlers. This wasn't an MOS deal. This was, oh. this was a, Hey, this is a, we need this to be field expedient contract pops up, right? They just start funneling Marines into the process. And so, you know, the education piece was, was huge. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I didn't take that lightly, Yeah. you know, um, those positions, you know, at the time they were, you know, they made good money and, and I think everyone's experiences were different. Um, as an FSR and the Marine Corps, you know, you, Marines are used to having FSR support for a number of things, whether it's mechanics or, you know, on bases, you know, the cooks or whatever, yeah. the FSR titles everywhere kind of in the military contracting world, but there's not a ton of them um, that really dive into the level of support, you know, that, that, that like a dog program would need. <clears throat> right. So, <clears throat> you know, with, with that in mind, um, being one of the guys that started the foundational training going through those process and then getting into that position right it was very obvious that there was a lot of things still to be desired before these dogs were going to get operational right and that's that's kind of where um my thought process has turned a little bit and as well as working into um the 2.0 program for that for that contract so the the 2.0 was basically a um 
review after action uh, AAR reports coming in from utilization and you know the Marine Corps and saying, hey, where's the program at? You know, how are things going? Alleviates maybe some some issues that the dogs were having, or you know, as, as far as um, you know, conditioning was a big one. The environment was rough. It was hot. Yeah, you know, right. the dogs were you know expected to go out and handle and run you know large distances, whether you were mounted or dismounted, based on your your capabilities. Um, so, getting into some of the scientific research of that it was you know basically conditioning. Uh, emotional reactivity testing, a lot of olfaction stuff, um, other cognitive, cognitive things came online, uh, during that project as well. So I get to, I got to participate in a lot of that stuff. Um, and ultimately, you know, establishing some best practice for, you know, the last section of green dogs that came into that program. Um, and, and basically just creating a formal program of record through through that process. So I was part of a of a, a team um, that that went through that and was one of the actually the last uh, battalions to deploy overseas before really um, the end of the war of that, you know, that phase before the sequestration, and everything kind of cut it off. So, yeah, is the, our um, overall in the program, do you think the way that you guys were doing it was super effective? Because I know it was different because the other places were all on leash and they were trying to get it. Was it do what they kind of intended it to do? Yeah. So I, I can say that, you know, there was definitely a natural progression. It took some time to, you know, get the input and the feedbacks coming from the field. And, and you know, your FSRs were the first guys coming back once they got back in country. Um, a lot of that information was shared. And, and so we absolutely attacked, you know, any issues that were going on with dogs or handlers or, or the training process. Right. So it was kind of a corrective measure as real time as you could get. And when I got there, um, you know, there was some, some teams that were producing some really, really good dogs. Um, and there was, you know, probably, you know, some, some other left to be desired at some point, but that wasn't necessarily part of, you know, the fault of the training aspect or the contract. It was just, if, if you don't have good handlers coming in, as well right mm -hmm. you can put the best dog with you know inca incapable handler and you're still going to have issues so there was some of that stuff going on but in the end uh i was there almost four different years um you know the end product at the 2.0 was definitely the best dogs that came out of the program it was it was an absolute fantastic capability and quite frankly i haven't seen anything even remotely close to it thus far so yeah um uh, we talked about i uh, before we started I thought, with the exception of Marsoc, the Marines just scrapped their almost their whole dog program. Yeah, I've, I've heard it's been downsized significantly, and you know, but. yeah, that's too bad. So let's fast forward here to uh, now. Uh, you are uh, a rookie, basically, in law enforcement, um, but doing the dog stuff. How did this happen? Sure. So um, after the IDD contract, I stayed in defense contracting. Um, for a few more years and wasn't dog related, but I did some work, um, with a federal agency that had to do with, uh, chemical weapons, mm -hmm. uh, destruction out of, uh, Pueblo and, uh, did that contract for a while as a project manager. And it was just another mission support contract. It had to do with, uh, you know, chemical weapons convention and the treaty obligations. So mm -hmm. I got tired of doing that and, and uh, decided, Hey, I'm going to go back to training dogs full time. And so, uh, had concentrated really in the, in the pet, pet world, 
um, and everything was fine. Uh, I live fairly rural in a, in a smaller community. So, you know, clientele wasn't, you know, like in, in a big city. So, but I was, I was managing. And then when COVID hit, you know, the light switch just turned off and I thought, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to be in trouble here real, real quick. So at, at the end of the world times, right. And everyone's panicking or whatever. I thought, well, you know, an essential job's kind of where I probably need to land and just figure out how long this is going to play out and see, see what the future brings. So yeah, I threw in, threw in my hat um, in the LE arena uh, to an agency that I, I knew uh, didn't have a, a canine capability at that point in time. And I started from the bottom. So came in as, you know, working in the jail and, and did a stint in there and was able to get on special assignment, um, you know, working high risk transports and, and you know, moving, moving inmates and prisoners and stuff all across, you know, the state and um, across state lines in some, some cases, but, uh, put my head down to that. And we had, um, an opportunity, uh, kind of internally, uh, from a grant. And, um, I was approached by one of our, um, uh, one of my cohorts there that's well-versed and, and very experienced and, and knew kind of knew my background already. And so, uh, she had put all that together and, and actually got a grant approval to start a uh, canine program within the detention center, uh, effectively the first phase of it. So uh, totally switched gears. Uh, we started started writing, actually writing the program. Like, so I, I'm a kind mm -hmm. of a one man show right now um, from, you know, writing the program, the policies, all the training procedures, everything else, doing the procurement pieces yeah. and, and training and handling and you name it. So you got to start, you know, kind of from the ground up when you're, when you're a smaller agency. So my leadership has been, you know, very proactive in supporting that and giving me kind of the flexibility and freedom to use, you know, all of my experiences thus far in that, in my canine career. So um, pleased to have that opportunity. Uh, currently we have uh, two labs that are just about a year old. We did start this program as a puppy program. So I've had them since they were eight weeks. And uh, currently looking at, you know, the certification timeframe now, I've got uh, one dog that's that's ready for certification or uh, near two. And then the other one um, looking at uh, possibly doing a different, you know, tracking discipline on that dog just to have another capability. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that's that's currently where I'm at in uh, the LA world. It's been about three years total. Nice. Uh, better late than never, right? Right, right. Where do you see that headed? Well, uh, you know, diving into the LE field headfirst and, you know, seeing, you know, kind of how uh, county politics work and then, you know, the, the state of Colorado, you know, kind of what's been handed down since I've been there and the, the re kind of rapid changes that they've had legally. Um, I, I would love to, you know, add, add additional dogs and handlers to the program at some point in time. But I think that uh, with some change of the, the laws in Colorado, there's a little bit of apprehension um, because really of the Amendment 64, um, you know, legalization of marijuana. And there's been some case law that, you know, people are probably familiar with, definitely uh, the handlers in Colorado um, that raises some question marks on um, how you can operate, you know, uh, the searches basically. Because once marijuana went legal and Colorado, you know, versus McKnight was established, 
um, that, that created kind of a, a vacuum more or less for, uh, in particular, you know, the fentanyl issue that's going around, you know, the country, the, the opioid um, problem. So I, I'm hopeful uh, that eventually through, through some networking and, and good conversation and getting with, you know, multiple agencies and parties in play that there, there'll be a time where maybe there's um, a press to um, potentially change case law for the benefit. You know, marijuana is one thing. Fentanyl, quite frankly, kills people. Yeah. And, and it's had a huge ripple effect, you know, across the country. And um, being in a standby posture for me is is not, you know, it, it, it's, it, it touches everybody, right? So um, I, I'd like to be more proactive and that's in that sense and so it's it's the it thing to talk about right now and in the the canine side of law enforcement uh for detection anyway for narcotics detection is fentanyl and it 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 seems like once or twice a week i'm getting phone calls uh, about can we dog should we can we will you um do a dog on it and routinely my handlers are finding shit tons of fentanyl um, through other methods than using the dog, but it, it's, it is. And I think anyone listening to this is handling a dog, um, and law enforcement shit, even if you're listening to this and you're not, I mean, it's in the news no matter what. So, um, yeah, it's definitely one of those do we, don't we? And now we have xylene, which is our trank or whatever we're going to call it now, which is another thing that's coming out that has been added to it or used in place of, <clears throat> and it's a yet another substance that's now, so yeah, I'm, it, it ought to be interesting. The next couple of years should be interesting and in, um, how we deal with that from the dog side. For and sure. I think now it, uh, federally, if an, uh, schedule one, um, fentanyl is now. So, I mean, it's before it wasn't even really illegal, but now it is like federally illegal. So I think it's probably going to head that way with the, the dogs. Uh, one last thing I want to get into, it's going to take a few minutes for you, uh, to do. So, Ted and I are admittedly just like Neanderthals, right? We just train dogs <laughs> and we do the system that we do. I don't like reading science stuff as much. In the last few years, dude, so at this conference, there's four or five speakers with doctor in front of their name or some letters after their name. And all of a sudden I started seeing, and there's guys that have gotten real popular and have made um, a, a living of really putting science first and then basing their, um, or, or what do I say, confirming the science through the work of the dog. And it's gotten real heavy over the last, like real heavy. And we talked about this the other day that, that you and I seem to be on the same page that we think it should be the reverse of that, where the science should back up what we're doing with the dogs. Is that, do I read you that right? Well, I, I'm on kind of both sides of the fence of that. And like my experience, I guess, has been, you know, having some hands-on um, experience and performing some of the scientific stuff, the studies um, I've, I've come to the conclusion at this point in time that, you know, the way I train now um, is very specific based off of my practical experience in, in the years of training that I've done. Right. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the science is coming out that is coming out is absolutely validating why I'm training that way. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, it's a give and take. Um, I don't want to, you know, be closed minded and not 
research that stuff. So I do. I'm, I'm very involved in reading it and, and going to a lot of the, the conferences from, you know, the, the experts that are putting this stuff out and, and bless their heart. You know, I think it's absolutely necessary. The, the big picture is, is that, you know, when the courts start adopting this stuff, you're not going to have a choice either way. So you're going to be ahead of the times or you're going to be behind it. And so I think, you know, having your eyes open and, and, you know, everyone's busy and and kind of got their head down and doing what they're comfortable doing. And, and science is not easy to read or understand a lot of times, but I think it's worth diving into and at least educating yourself and coming up with your own conclusion. There was Uh, a uh, study that just came out about tracking dogs. I think it came out from Norway and they were talking about how, what they're actually smelling when we have dogs tracking human beings and a lot of the things that dogs do as a behavior when they start tracking when they're starting the phases of tracking like how we start teaching dogs to track um like you said like with the way we've been doing it and we've been successful we're like all right you know we may not know the 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 reason the published reason why because it hasn't been published but anecdotally you read that and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, <laughs> okay, I guess it makes sense now. So uh, my problem with the science side of stuff has always been, um, and this is not a knock against people that do this research, but very few of those people actually have um, a ton of hands-on training experience. And a lot of those studies, the first thing I usually always do is look at the test pool size and what the test pool consists of, right? So statistically to see if there's a, like if it's statistically significant one, or if they cherry pick the subjects also to help drive a result. And uh, it's always interesting to see people with PhDs talk about training dogs to do these like not soft skills that we do day in and day out. And, you know, a lot of times they'll give us great information and I'm like, okay, I mean, what do you want me to do with that? Like, what am I supposed to do? So um, there is definitely a gap, I think, between, um, and it's a one directional gap, like, you know, like us, like we read the science, we read the stuff. And then anecdotally, we then say, oh, okay, now, now I understand why. I've done it this way and you may even be able to glean some things from that, like tracking that article that that study that came out, like I, it helped confirm some of the ways that I imprint dogs on human odor. Um, but it doesn't necessarily go the other way. Um, so when you present a problem to somebody that doesn't do this on a daily basis, that spends their life researching, they're like, well, and the answer to them is you need more reps and you need more dogs. And you're like, well, this is an individual dog problem and it doesn't necessarily repeat itself over and over. We're manipulating this drive or that or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting, like when science and fucking dog training, when science and art come together, it gets, uh, it gets a little funky sometimes. Sure. Yeah. And I agree with you. You know, I think dog training is definitely an art form or, you know, a skill set that is, is extremely unique. Uh, and, and everyone's kind of got their own signature to it, right. Based off of what they believe in and, and how they're applying things. Um, but, you know, I also have, again, with my experience, you know, the, the, a lot of the researchers and the people that are really diving into this are extremely passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're definitely probably more, uh, advocates and allies than, than the opposition, I would say. And they're, they are absolutely intelligent people clearly and believe it or not, you know, I think that they're, they're absolutely 
learning a ton of about the training side of oh, yeah. it as well through the process. So I think oh, in yeah. the end, right, you've you've got a good um, good group of diverse backgrounds that are you know aiming for the same end result. And in the last you know fifteen years, that's become very very apparent. So yeah, well, yeah it's I'm, not going to get any worse. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm ex- I'm excited to see you know they are definitely bridging the gap to a lot of the questions um, that are out there, um, particularly in the olfaction piece and, you know, a lot of the chemical um, components and different things that a lot of people probably should know that don't. So again, I I would recommend diving into it. It doesn't have to be your end all be all right, right. But there is a ton of, a ton of information to learn there for sure. Well, the one thing you brought up about the court is, is actually that's super important because what'll happen is I'll go in as an SME on, on the dog training and then the defense will bring in Dr. So-and-so and I will look like a moron because they have doctor in front of their name and maybe they can talk and, and, and show things correctly. And then now it starts and they're going to be bringing them more and more and more in what I do hope with the scientists that, cause they seem to be the ones that we've met. We've met a lot of the same people. They definitely are searching for the truth, right? They seem to be very uh, committed to that art form of being a scientist. What I really hope is that they continue towards like when they're doing the studies that it's not skewed towards a, a yeah, get me to this conclusion or rather do this and whatever the conclusion is, is is how it works out. I think that's probably the only smart way to do it. And if the conclusion they come they come up with is completely divergently different than what we're doing, and they can show it, well, you almost have no choice but to, okay, well, I've there's been fucking perfect, this up. Sure, per- yeah, no, and I think it, again, it is a double edged double edged sword, right? If a lot of the the research that's being you know performed is is being adopted by the court system, right? For, from a cop standpoint, you're like, okay, well you know, the end result of, of case law, right. It's, it's, it's constantly going to change, but it's also constantly going to change kind of the way we have to operate. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is a little bit of a a rub in between the two, but I I only see it at this point in time as, as it's, it's what's coming down, down the pipe, be be prepared for it and, and don't be foresighted and and support it and don't be behind the curve. You know, I, there's several guys in the country that are SMEs for the other side that are doctors, right? That work for um, plaintiff attorneys. Uh, there's a really famous one that's in California that kind of that kind of bills himself as the the dog aggression expert. And if you look at his PhD work, he did PhD work in animal aggression, and the study was on fucking hamsters, mm-hmm. on on golden hamsters, which are aggressive. Like uh, those things are gnarly, but there's not a lot of principle similarities between an angry hamster and an angry Angry and an angry police dog and dude he sells it though man like he like i've read some depositions from that dude and i he sells the like he sells it and when he when he's confronted about it though they're like you know do you have you ever like because his whole thing is he does a police dog like he does an evaluation on the dog and like it's interesting because i've seen some depositions where an attorney that knew what they were that, that was very well that, that was very well prepared was like, what are you looking at here? What are you, cause they're looking at a video. What are you looking at? What are you seeing? Like, explain to me what you're seeing. And it, it, it the wheels fall off very quickly because he has the scientific portion of it because there is some, there is some similarities in aggression, right? So whether it's sex based or whether it's resource based or whatever it is, but then the wheels fall off because the specificity was lacking. And I think, I hope 
that some of the like new science or whatever that's that's being done, the research is specifically aimed at the stuff that we deal with day in and day out because it gets weaponized against us when and overly generalized and it gets misquoted and pulled out of context. And then we start having all kinds of other problems, but you're right. Like I hope that specifically somebody addresses it and it's a matter of time before it happens, but yeah. Yeah. And I think one of them, you know, one of them, um, one of the studies, you know, that's been argumentative uh, for quite some time now, and there's been a lot of podcasts and chatter about it, but um, you know, we had a short conversation the other day and, and talking about double blind testing, right? Mm-hmm. And and that that to me um absolutely has high value in training. But it seems, uh, my personal opinion, that double blind testing came about because of certain studies and and everybody understanding that obviously dogs will cue from human behavior, mm-hmm. right? But um from my experience, that's that's because we haven't narrowed the search criteria to teach the dog that you know, my body does not equal payment. If, if, if your dog's doing that, if your dog is indicating based off of your cues, you've got some training problems, right? You need to narrow that search criteria down to a very specific means. Right. And that, that kind of goes into uh, a a vast um, array of cognitive discriminations and, and, Mm that is a large part of, of what my training program is, is, you know, inherently you're, you're going to create, um, especially during the teach and target odor phase, right? Your, your search criteria bandwidth is extremely wide, right? You're putting all kinds of stuff in there Mm -hmm. that later on you're going to have to take out, right. To get that specificity. It's, it's, I need you to find odor and alert to odor. Right. But through those regimented training processes and really it's I think it's a correlation of the human brain. Right. Devising these training processes that do work. Mm-hmm. Right. Like. Um, but that's not how the dog is interpreting it. And and they live in such context that, you know, I I am very cognizant of. How I'm re- reinforcing, how much I'm reinforcing and what I'm reinforcing. So everyone wants to make a dog as fast as they can. They want to do it efficiently. They want to do it with, you know, as little cost as, as they can into it. And then they have to have an operational product. I think there's a huge disconnect in a lot of the processes that are going on now and getting out to operations. I mean, an odor recognition test to me does not certify. It shouldn't certify a dog necessarily no. and yet, to work on the streets, and right? Yeah, we have the Nort test. It's yeah, in I mean, the, it's in the fucking right? name. I mean, if, <laughs> you should be you should be doing a certification test that's representative to the, you know, operational environment that you're working in. Yeah. <clears throat> the other thing, um, my thing with the double blind test is because uh, humans are involved. Um, so if you have more than one dog that's certifying and it's a double blind where the handler doesn't know and the evaluator doesn't know, somebody put the, the odor out after about the third dog, second or third dog that keeps coming out, say they come out and they tell you what they're going to call for the things. And the, the evaluator doesn't know, but about the third dog where they're all saying the, you know, top left dresser drawer or, or desk drawer of that door. I think it's difficult for some guys to well, it must be in that fucking drawer. Now it's not a double blind. Now I know. 
And um, how do you do, if you do in double blinds, how do you keep it so it's actually the whole time double blind? Because then it can affect the way the, the guy's looking, the evaluator, what he's giving off, which could cue the guy. Well, so really I think it represents the the initial so reward history is reward history, right? You you get what you what you build, and inherently cues are fantastic. We use cues for training all the time, right? When you really break it down and think about it, you can use cues in such a positive fashion for how we handle dogs, and we do. A lot of people are doing it unconsciously; they just don't realize it. Yeah. Single blind testing is no different, right? Unless you're actually doing a drone flown you know, video surveillance piece, having two people, right? If that's the way that you've, if the dog was trained, right? With the handler and a trainer, right? That's still a cue to a dog, yeah. right? So the cues are everywhere, right? So again, it's it's kind of getting the criteria where you need it. Transfer scent is is a real problem. Oh yeah, dogs right? find other dogs. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I have to detrack my detection dogs, right? Whether it's from myself, whether it's from, you know, other trainers or handlers, if they're setting up problems and whether it's from training in a large group of dogs, right. They're going to use that to their advantage. It's just the way it is. So how can you say by setting up a single blind, double time, double blind test or whatever, that, you know, the dog absolutely knows it's target odor that is going to produce reward. Mm -hmm. The only way to do that is by reverse engineering your training processes. And that is breaking down all of the reasons a dog will actually false response. And this is where it gets super argumentative, right? Like I can, I can, t I take that very seriously. And I did a long time. I've been chasing false response behavior for years, for years and years and years. So when you really dig into the nuts and bolts of that, there's um, a vast reason or vast many reasons that a dog will do it. And really it comes in the form of odor discrimination and generalization processes, right? Combined with contextual associations. And it may be a combination of three different things together, right? And, and really to get into those processes, we, I could, I could speak to this for, for a long time and probably put a three day class on it, but right. um, we have to be very, very aware of how our foundational training is affecting the false response rate. Because to me, if accuracy is what's going to be argued in court, then you better be showing a form of acknowledgement of we know why dogs will false response. Mm -hmm. We know that, right? Because we train dogs and we've got to fix it. We've got to make them as accurate as we can be. So your training has to back that up. And, and realistically, it's reverse engineering your training. I mean, I... I could ask you for training records for your one dog for the last two months in detection, right? Right. And I could analyze what you've done and put it down and say, all right, give me five minutes and run a test setup. And I would almost put a hundred dollar bill on it. Then I'm going to get your dog to false. Yeah. Just based on what you've been putting in there. My favorite still is the guys that go into court and go hundred percent. My dog is never, ever. It's not in training, not ever. It's, it's yeah, that's unachievable. Right. <laughs> but you can, but you can show that you have got your dog as calibrated as possible through some, some different training processes. Mm -hmm. Right. And so my uh, controlled negatives, right. And blanks and, and how, whatever terminology you want to use. Um, when I get to, a season level dog, I am doing probably 70% of the, 
controlled negatives mm -hmm. versus odor. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same way. I didn't used to be, to be honest, like that. You know, I mean, when I was at the police department, sitting here listening to, to the you two talk about it back and forth, like I'm running through some of the case law in my head, like from U.S. versus Bentley and some of these other ones, like even searching a car itself as a cue. And even in U.S. versus Bentley, that handler, they found, I don't know, 16 grams or 16 kilos of Coke. But in that, in that deposition, that handler said, you know, the dog, he calls it his gifty, which is the toy that they give the dog for the reward. He said incorrectly, or well, correctly, I guess in his case, that he gives a reward to the dog every time he searches a car. So the initial question then becomes, is searching the car the cue? Is he performing an obedience behavior at a known location or an object like a car? And performing an obedience routine just to get the reward, like so, it brings into like question the variable reward schedules and all this other stuff. But it it's a very common. So in handler schools, I tell my handlers because on the on the law enforcement side, because we're dealing with people's you know Fourth Amendment right, um, I tell my handlers, I'm like, look, you know, with you say your dog's never wrong, what you actually mean is your dog is taught to find the odor of, not the presence of contraband. So. We do have lingering odor, and there is enough lingering odor to cause an alert, which does establish probable cause to get into the vehicle. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the dog was wrong. It just means that it's not, the substance is not there, but the lingering odor is. And if there's no substance, there's no law been broken and no Fourth Amendment violation. So write them their ticket and cut them loose. Yeah, that's kind of the age-old yeah. argument, right? Residual odor and, and yeah. what you can't see and what you don't know. and. And I think that's a slippery slope. Um, my argument would be is show me in your training records where you've reinforced the dog on residual odor. And because I'm going to tell you that that's problematic in itself if you're yes. doing that. Yeah, I was going to say, because no one, no one will say that. You, no. I mean, I mean if, if, they... if you don't have a source, you cannot technically say what you paid the dog on, right? Yeah. Right. Unless you set now, it up, and then why would you do that? Now, again, it is realistic, mm -hmm. and it does happen, but it shouldn't be the majority no. of, of how or how that's being established, in my opinion, right? And 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 so getting back to kind of the, the operational-based kind of foundational training, you know, just take vehicle searches, for instance, right? And, and if you, if you look at, I, I watch all the social media posts and a lot of the threads and everything else, and I'm just, I'm blown away at, you know, some of the questions that are coming up and, and I, and I get it, you know, there's a lot of new handlers out there and they're, they're chomping for information and, and, and support and help. And then they're only getting so much for whatever reason from their agencies and, you know, I sure hope they have a trainer attached to them and stuff, you know, like there's just, there's just a number of things on there, but the reality of it is, is if you're not training with operational hides and in, in real time scenarios, you're not benefiting yourself and you're not benefiting the dog, right? You've got to really, really challenge them to show that you are proficient in the situations you're going to encounter. So user amounts of dope inside of a car in a, in a console is extremely hard to find from the exterior of a vehicle. That's just the reality of it. And if your dog is, doesn't have a very detailed search with a high sniff frequency and duration, right? In, in different environmental conditions, your probability of finding that is, is pretty dang low. Yes. You know, so that's just kind of food for thought. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys doing bang up work out there and some fantastic dogs without a doubt. I mean, the, the results show themselves, but on the other end of it, you know, checking the box training is only going to get you checking the box results. And to me, because of my experience and, and, 
again, my conclusion and, and kind of standpoint at this point in time is based off of having to tool people to save human life. So I think I see things a little bit differently, mm-hmm. right? When you, when you've had that experience and you're the guy on the hook as an SME, yeah. right? That's how I've come to that opinion. So fast forward to now, right? My training processes have changed because of the lessons that I've learned, but it's still going to be more or less operationally based from the get-go when I'm training puppies. I want that big picture and that process and the system that I use is, is unique. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know anyone else that's quite doing it that way. And I've trained, you know, enough dogs now to say, yeah, I, I'm liking the results of, of what I'm, what I'm doing. So, um, yeah, it's just, uh, we should name this episode rabbit hole because we're on the precipice of fucking this yeah. up. Well, he said that like, <laughs> right? he said his system and his like, it's unique. And I'm like, Oh really? Yeah, right, and I yeah. looked at the recording time and I'm like, Oh really? No. Yeah, right. So, but we need to, DJ, we need to have you back on so we can do just an episode. If you want to talk about that to do just that. Sure. Um, that would sure. be a full length episode. So it'd be a full one. But I mean, yeah. So it, uh, there's a lot of like things in this interview, a lot of themes that you've touched on that I think are operating in the background um, of a lot of handlers. And you touched on a lot of themes that are operating in the background of uh, one of our other companies, like, you know, the check the box training gets you check the box results, which I mean, if you sat through my my presentation on Monday, like my second slide. Um, and Eric will say the same thing when he went his first patrol dog, their admins didn't give a shit. They said, just go get certified. Just go check the box. Just do that. And you're done. It's the only thing I give a shit about. Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, you touched on some themes that are kind of an undercurrent for more than just detection training um, and canine for sure. Yeah. Can I add one more thing real quick? Absolutely. Just so you know, canine programs uh, are successful um, with great leadership and educating your leadership and having advocates within your agency. And that is true to the military. That is true to law enforcement. That is true to to contracting, right? Like, because this is a highly specialized field and it's very artsy per se. um, If, if your command staff and your administrators or, you know, whoever decision makers are, are not in the bar ditch with you while you're training and doing this stuff, they will never understand it appropriately and they will never fund it appropriately. So if there's any supervisors or sheriffs or, you know, chiefs, whoever's out there doing this stuff, um, this is very unique um, skill sets to have. And, uh, you know, you have to educate yourself. Otherwise, it's not worth it's not worth the time and money to do it. If you're doing it half ass, you're going to get half ass results just the way it is. So, yeah. And fund your shit, man. Don't make handlers pay for their own stuff. SWAT guys get everything canine gets get shit you know yeah it's that's a whole different twist on you know the money piece <laughs> uh, is the money piece but unfortunately it's expensive and um you're gonna what you're paying for is what you're gonna get mm-hmm. so well i appreciate you man yep. was, i'm glad we were able to get this thanks for interrupting i know you're thirsting for knowledge and sitting in classes all the time um but i appreciate you taking some time no, out thanks gentlemen i really appreciate it thank I'll you absolutely i yeah. appreciate it it's no secret that Eric and I love Ray Allen Canine Equipment. We use their products every single day. The mission statement says it all. To be a world leader in quality and innovation of professional canine equipment for police, military, Schutzen, and ring sport. To exceed our customers' expectations and to deliver on time every time at a fair price. We full-heartedly believe they held true to that since it's our go-to one-stop shop for everything. Like They literally have everything but the dog, the handler, 
and the patrol vehicle. Everything else they got, they got it covered. So hit them up at rayallen.com at Ray Allen canine on the socials. They got a new training app and they got new product collaborations. Oh, and we have a new discount code Ram WDR like Ram R A M W D R like working dog radio Ram WDR for 10% off. Hit them up. Ray No secret that I love my ALM suit from Arnaud out at ALM canine equipment in sunny Las Vegas, Nevada. I've had that thing forever. Eric affectionately refers to it as my Carhartt suit because it's so thin. <laughs> uh, I've had multiple sleeves put back on it, send it back to Arno. He fixes me up every single time. The fit and finish is top notch, and it fits me like a glove. I refuse to go anywhere without it. I work sport dogs and PSA without it. I just did a trial in California wore that thing. I work police dogs pretty much every day of the week, and then I use it for personal protection dogs as well. So hit ALM canine equipment up on Instagram and Facebook, and then go to AL. M K nine letter K number nine equipment.com and use the discount code W D radio for 10% off of your first order. And this is completely custom. So made to measure, pick your colors, whatever you want to do. Arno will work with you. You can make it as thin or as thick as you want, but hit them up. ALM K nine equipment. Ever dreamed of having your own kennel, but don't know where to start. Horizon structures has taken all of the guesswork out of building a kennel. Everything is pre-built to your specifications and preferences and then assembled and dropped off on your land. Boom, new kennel. Hooked up to your electric, hooked up to your water, put dogs in it that day. And those things are amazing. You've got to see them to truly believe them. Get on the website, horizonstructures.com. You can custom build. You can buy one that's already built. Go off of their design. Come up with your own design. They'll work with you. Uh, They always are running discounts on the website with ready-to-go kennels. The kennels are already ready to go. There's always discounts. Horizonstructures.com. Check them out. You got your reasons. I got my wants. Still got that feeling, but I'm too old to die young Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother, D-E-G-E, dot blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.